Welcome to the Pursuit of Learning podcast. I'm your host, Clint Murphy. My goal is for each of us to grow personally, professionally, and financially one conversation at a time. To do that, we will have conversations with subject matter experts across a variety of modalities. My job as your host will be to dig out those golden nuggets of wisdom that will facilitate our growth. Join me on this pursuit. In the United States, 1.8 million people will be diagnosed with cancer in a year, and up to 600,000 people will die from the disease. They say that if we live long enough, all of us will get cancer, which means that you or someone you know may end up with it. On today's episode, talk to Rachel Engstrom about how she navigated the cancer world and how you can too. There's a lot to learn and unpack in this episode. Hi, Rachel. Welcome to The Pursuit of Learning. I want to dive right into your book. I'm not going to give the title yet because I don't want to give away the full story until we get sure. to the end. Let's start by talking about how you met Grayson at your friend Maria's house in 2000 and how closely the two of you grew together. Yeah, so I met Grayson when I was 19. My friend had a birthday party. It was a friend that I met in the dorm the year before. And she kept telling me about this guy and he was older and you have to meet him. And I was just thinking, okay, you know, I don't really know what he looks like or anything about him, but okay. He worked with her, my friend's boyfriend. So I went to this party and this guy shows up and I'm just, I remember the first thing as I opened up, he handed me some, like a CD booklet when everybody carried around CDs all the time. <laughs> a CD booklet and he had the Pet Shop Boys in there. And I grew up with older siblings that listened to Pet Shop Boys. And I remember thinking like, something's going to be a little bit different about this guy. Cool. <laughs> and you guys grew together pretty quickly. And in the fall of 2003, you proposed to him. I did. Can you tell our listeners about that and how it yeah. went through the wedding? Yeah. So we had been talking about, so he was a little over or a little under seven years older than me. And I remember thinking like, my parents can't say anything about the age difference. Cause they were, my mom was 19 and my dad was 26 when they got married. And we'd been talking about it a little bit, but I really didn't want him to have to come up with some, you know, fancy romantic scheme or spend a lot of money. So, so he came over to my apartment after work and it was like one in the morning and he had beer pint glass in his hand and I took it out of his hand and I was just like, you know what? Will you marry me? And he was like, what? Is this the way that you want to do this? Um, and I was like, hang on. And I went to the kitchen and I went and I got um, two Tootsie Rolls and said, bite it in half and then give me the other half. And we swapped them. <laughs> and that was it. But then the next day, the next morning when we got up, we called my parents and I told them, but acted as if he had just come over for breakfast because, you know, I'm, I'm 21 and in college and a boy is not, you know, supposed to spend the night or, you know, anything like that. So it was pretty fun. <laughs> and so after you guys had been married for about seven years, you were out for a Chinese food dinner 
And、mm -hmm. in Grayson's fortune cookie, it said, "You are about to have a major life change." When you look back on that, what does that mean to you? What does that bring up? Well, the previous fall and summer, I had found out I had endometriosis really bad, and I had ovarian cyst rupture and different things like that. So, I, and I broke my wrist months the beginning of 2010. So I was thinking, yeah, you know, this is going to be a better year. I don't know what it means. You know, maybe. I'll have different job, or you know, something's going to happen. We were wanting to have a baby. You know, we'd been married for six, six and a half years. So it was, I was thinking something like that. You know,、mm -hmm. something very、mm -hmm. positive was going to happen. And then shortly thereafter, in January, you received a text from Grayson. He'd been quite tired,、mm -hmm. and he went to the doctor, and they said he needed a blood transfusion given a low hemoglobin count, and. Combining that with how tired he was, everyone just thought it's anemia. So, what was going through your mind when you first heard that? I just had this gut feeling like this is not normal. It's just it was alarming to me. So, I was getting my residents. I worked at an assisted living for mentally ill adults, and I was took people for activities and different things. And we had just gone to Target, and I was getting them in. The van with all their purchases, and you know, my phone buzzes, and it's January, and it's blustery and cold, and I see this, and I'm just thinking,、mm, this is not normal. And I just remember thinking, like, I have to get to him, you know, like <laughs> you want to think, like, screw these people that I'm working with, you know, I just want to drive, drive to where he is, but you know, I had to just be normal and remain, you know, calm and drive them back to where they lived, and then, you know. Tell my boss I need to go. Something's wrong. You know, I'm not exactly sure what's wrong yet, but I need to go. And then I raced home and found him there, and he was just so tired. He was so so tired. And when you went for the blood transfusion, they said it wasn't anemia, but a rare blood disorder、mm -hmm. that, though it would require intense treatment, would be treatable. Correct.、Mm -hmm. So. Uh, I'm imagining a bit of fear. You're hearing rare blood issue, but then you're hearing treatable. Maybe there's some relief there. Can you walk us through what that was like for Grayson and for you? Yeah. So we go and we sit. They send us from the. We're about to leave. It takes two hours per bag for the blood transfusion, and we're almost done with the second bag. And we're about to leave, and they say, "Wait, you know, we need you to wait." And they said, "We need you to go to the Humphrey Center." They don't tell us that the Humphrey Center is the Humphrey Cancer Center. So we go there, and then we're waiting, and he's. We know something's wrong, and he starts to get a little bit teary. And we're sitting in this room, and we wait like twenty five minutes, and someone comes in, and she tells us this, and I'm thinking, okay, this is when she tells us this is doable. So as soon as we're done, and she says, okay, we're gonna, you know, talk to your doctors. We'll set up appointments. You know, we'll see you next week or whatever it was. He's like, hang on, I have to go to the bathroom. So I'm like, okay, and then I call work and. Say you know thanks for your prayers. This is what's going on. It's not as bad as we thought. And he comes out of the bathroom and he's wearing his winter coat and his winter hat. And he he's you know raises up his arms and says, "Well, at least it's not the big C."、Mm -hmm. And then we go home and I just he's really upset. He's crying because he doesn't want to have to go through this. What they diagnosed him with was something where they'd have to cycle out all of your blood, cycle it back in. It would be like three weeks of seven every single day. So twenty one days in a row of doing this, and he's just—I think his tears were just at exhaustion. He was just so exhausted, and he'd been like sweating all the time at night, and 
just reached it was super pale just reached that point where you know like we were glad to know what it was but just upset you know that something's wrong with you and i just remember being like okay we're gonna do this this is gonna be doable and looking i just started googling research articles and different things like that and it seemed like ttp what he was diagnosed with was something doable and i'm trying to tell him you know this is going to be okay and you know we could do this and and then it got worse so not only were they wrong about the anemia and then the blood disorder but you received a call that night i believe that meant the relief was very short-lived can you take us through what you learned on that call and what that did to the two of you? Yeah. So they actually called and said, the doctor that we had just talked to, very nice a woman. And she said, you know, Grayson, it turns out it's not TTP. And she said, you know, we need you to come in for more tests, but it's not TTP. And he said, that's good, right? And she said, actually, Grayson, no. You know, we've been looking at your blood and there's some things we're concerned about and we need you to come in tomorrow to get a bone marrow biopsy. And I don't know how or where, but it just clicked. He has cancer. I'm sure he has leukemia. I'm sure he has cancer. And he was just very somber. And then we hung up the phone and he just started crying. So I just sat there and I held him. And then I went upstairs and called my parents and was like, I need you to pray. You know, this is what's happening. And yeah, so it's it's definitely not what we thought. Changed very, very quickly. And it turned out he did have, I think what I recall you writing was acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Lymphoblastic leukemia. Mm -hmm. Lymphoblastic leukemia. And Rachel, at this point, every once in a while, we'll break off to some of the things yeah. you realized. If you're going through what we went through, here's some advice that I have for someone who's in the same boat, which sure. I really appreciated in your book. And at this point, you wrote about emotions and the importance of feeling your emotions when you learn about that diagnosis. Can you tell our listeners more about what that looks like? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the biggest thing is fear. I mean, the number one thing you think is, oh my gosh, I don't want them to die. I don't want them to die. I don't want them to die. You know, you need to get medical treatment, at least for me. So I wrote this book to help everyone else, which we'll of course get into, but I wrote it because it's such a lonely experience when you're going through it and you truly feel you're the only person going through this, but but you're not. But within that, more than likely, a lot of people in your close social circle are not going through this. So you just, you don't know how to navigate it until I wrote this book. There literally is not a navigational guide. I think it's it's okay just to feel mad you know, angry, upset. At the time, I was working a full-time job, the one I described. I was also nannying every other weekend. Um, I was on a LGBTQ board. It was like an elderly, it was like getting, make sure, it was making sure, at least here in the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul, making sure people that worked at long-term care facilities and things like that were adequately trained to deal with elderly people that were of the LGBT population. And I had been part of this from when the time it went from a committee to a board to a couple different things. And all of a sudden, it's like, I have to drop off this board, I have to drop off, you know, I can't do this other part time job. Um, you know, so it's not only our lives are thrown into a thing, but it's like, I have to just scrap, you know, things that I'm responsible for things that I'm doing because nothing else matters, but his health. And so how do you recommend people 
get in touch with those emotions, get them out of their body so they're not holding on to it all the time. Are there any suggestions you have for the listeners? Yeah, I think the number one thing is to make sure that you have someone, whether it's a friend or family member or whoever that is, to make sure that you have someone that is just your person. I didn't intentionally... So it's funny because all the things that I did in hindsight, some of them were just excellent. And I mean, to me, that was God. That was just learning it on the fly. But intrinsically, for whatever reason, I knew everything that I was feeling, all my fears, all my doubts, he's going to die, what's going to happen in my life. I never said those out loud to him because he had enough of his own crap that he was going through. He had enough of his own fears. We would talk about it through his journey that, you know, this is your job. This is your own personal Afghanistan. You're at war, all these separate things. So finding his own, you know, making sure he had his his emotional support and therapy and those different things. But I think it's really important to be able to call people and talk about it. But what's interesting is when an, a catastrophic illness hits, whether it's you know, everything we're going through with COVID right now. I initially wrote this book for people going through cancer, but it's it's applicable to any catastrophic illness, COVID, anything like that. Because truly, when something like this happens, you're in shock. For the first couple of weeks, you have a lot of stuff you need to take care of, but you're in shock. Sometimes you're kind of in denial, like this, this really can't be me. You know, all these t- typical things, because it's like one of those... You know, when you have had a job in the past and it's your last day and you drive out of the parking lot, and you get that kind of weird feeling. It's like that where, you know, something huge is happening. Something is changing, something monumental, but you can't really place it. But, you know, you can't go back. And when there's an illness like this, things are never going to be the same. So you just kind of have to surrender to those things. And I think that the toughest thing is if you don't have someone to talk to or you don't let yourself feel those emotions when they pop up, you're just going to crack at some point. And especially with illnesses and things like that, if you're the caregiver, you will crash and burn. So it's really important to be able to ride the ride, whether it's, you know, an illness or grief and loss or whatever that is. It's like when you get on the roller coaster and they put the bar down, it's going, you can't get back off. So you just, you, you, you have to surrender to it. And something you said there I want to emphasize because it really stood out for me when you wrote it and it came up with your speaking was the importance of that external emotional support person because the person who is sick is going through so much of their own emotion. You want to make sure that you're not adding to their emotional load with how you're feeling you're you're having that external person to share it with that's a it was such a great suggestion and made so much sense to me when i read it you also talk about the importance of questions for the Mm -hmm. doctors Mm -hmm. and can you take us through that and what that meant to you and it seemed almost like a what's next after you get the diagnosis Because quite often, when people are in this frame of mind, they hear that initial prognosis. And as you already said, they go into shock. So their ability to then ask the right questions to be in the 20% category instead of the 80% category 
doesn't necessarily work. So, so how would you suggest that the person who's on the outside, usually the caregiver or the partner, how do you get involved and what do you start asking right away? Yeah. The number one thing I didn't do this till later in his illness when I had my parents help with caregiving and whatnot, but it's really important to get like a notebook or even your, um, on your phone, the notepad app, but they're going to throw so many different statistics at you. So many different things, all these acronyms that are not in our world. You know, I was just driving earlier thinking about a friend of mine, how they work with like products and I work with people for my job. We have these many different spheres and genres of all these different things that we do, but especially with medical stuff, you're just in shock. So I think knowing to write things down, they're going to give you so much information. Like I just, my socks were blown off and all across the room when the doctor was able to say, we've known that this has been in his body, like, you know, not longer than two weeks or so. And it's infiltrated 97% of his bone marrow. Like what? Like, how do you, how do you know those things? Right. I think it's really important to know that they are there to heal you or your person or your family member. But ultimately it is their job to inform you. So if you're in doctors, the tricky thing is Doctors come in, they do their rounds. If you're hospitalized, if you're inpatient, you have the nurses who know everything, who are like ground level, the most amazing part of the part of the team. But the doctors come in, they do their rounds. They have, you know, depending on what day of the week it is, you know, your doctors during the week are not going to be your doctors during the weekend, like all those different kinds of dynamics. It's really important to know that you deserve the information. So one thing I write about is lots of times, you know, they're, they're sometimes quick and in a hurry and it doesn't mean that they don't care. They just have a lot of patience, a lot of information. So if you're not getting your questions answered, ask again or ask for another doctor to come back or ask the nurse to be able to interpret it for you because more than likely you're going to have tons of questions that pop up along the way. And it's really important that you get those answered because all of it is a domino effect of, you know, what's going to happen in the diagnosis. You know, when you pick, so for example, when he went to the hospital, when they found out the clinic that was associated with the hospital, the clinic where he had the blood transfusions was associated with the hospital near our house. Then when we were there, we decided to go to another facility for care, the University of Minnesota. So it's all those different things you don't really think about. We were very blessed to be in a large metropolitan area to have access to healthcare. A lot of people don't have that. But I mean, all those types of things, you really do need to go over your options because you want the best possible outcomes and you want to make sure you're dealing with people that know specifically how to work with that specific illness. And one of the things that jumps out at me as you're taking down the notes, because in the moment you hear an answer and if it's, if, if it's medical, there's quite a likelihood that it's, okay, what did I just hear? But if you're taking down those notes, you can then go home, do some Googling, WebMD, learn a bit about what you just were told that day, and then come back the next day and refine your next level or next round of questions. Yeah, definitely, okay. definitely, because you're going to come up with stuff. And the tricky thing is, I mean, the internet's wonderful, but there's also stuff on there that's not necessarily the most accurate, all those types of things. But you know, I remember being so confused. 
hearing about clinical trials and what does that mean and those things. And we were very fortunate that he, so he was 35. So he was in a clinical trial. So ALL, acute lymphoblastic leukemia is usually something that children get or the elderly get. So they had this study that they wanted him to be a part of and they offered it to us. And it's one of those I didn't know, like, you can opt out along the way if you want, things like that. But it was very, very intensive regimen and treatment. And he wanted to do it because he wanted to help other people. This is the best chance for him, things like that. But when I heard clinical trial, for me, it was like, he's a lab monkey, you know, Mm -hmm, things like mm -hmm. that. So it's being aware of, you know, what are the benefits? What are these things? So I remember going home and kind of Googling clinical trials and then realizing these are the things that end up being in place later for other people is the protocols that work. But when you're thrown all this information, you're like, oh my gosh, is this going to be the best for my person? You just have no idea when this is a world you've not been a part of. Absolutely. And Rachel, you were saying that when you're the caregiver and you've been tapped into the roller coaster and you're going for along for the ride, there's so much up and downs you're going to burn out, you're going to hit the wall. And so one of the things you talk about for the caregiver is the importance of, we already talked about the emotional support. You also highlight the importance of self-care. Can you take us through some of your thoughts on what self-care for the caregiver might look like and some examples that our listeners could apply if they're in this situation or that you used yourself as ways to care for yourself as you were going through this with Grayson? Yeah. You know, one of the things that I really think that, so I would work the first five weeks he was inpatient. It was just me taking care of him. His mom that lived 90 miles away, she visited it a few times, but it was, I would work eight hours. Then I would go home, let the dog out. Then I would come back. Then I would or then I would go to the hospital, be there for a couple hours, then come home next day, rinse, repeat. It was exhausting. It was like those times where you're driving in your car and you're like, oh my gosh, you snap back into focus and you're like, how have I not died and run off the road, you know, where you're just on autopilot, do that. And, you know, you just kind of get in the rut of eating what's available and comfortable. And I had a lot of fries and, you know, veggie burgers and all these kinds of things at the cafeteria. And you don't really think about the fact that just because you're not at home, you need to be fueling yourself with, and I know because you've read the book, I would talk about how I'd eat a lot of junk because it was there and it's donuts and soda and, you know, I'm not a coffee drinker. So I'd be drinking a giant Coke at, you know, whatever time in the morning. But I think it's, it's important to f- know that basically you are the car that's for the transportation for, for this ship for this party. So you have to fuel your body with what's important. I wish that I had gone on more walks, different things like that. I mean, it was January. So it's, it was, you know, it was January. So it's, it's fine that I didn't cause it was freezing. Like in, in here in Minnesota, it's, you know, negative one, <laughs> a lot of the winter, but I think it's really important to know that you can't do everything. I would have some nights. I tried to be there every day. But I would have some nights where I would stay home and just say, I am so sorry, you know, and we talk on the phone for an hour instead. I think knowing that you have limitations and listening to them because you will most certainly crash and burn. And I did at times. The job that I had was very difficult because I, within social services, social work type stuff, you don't inform your clientele, the vulnerable population of your personal life. So it's like I checked it at the door. 
I would talk to my coworkers between activities and different things, but basically you're holding all this in. And I think knowing that, you know, it's really important to have that, that extra support. Part of my self-care was having a sister or having a friend that knew, I mean, we didn't talk about it, but it's like they knew when Rachel calls, I'm not going to talk about myself. Just let her rant. Just let her get out whatever's going on. We all have those people in our lives. We do the same for those types of things. But I know just allowing yourself to not be perfect, knowing that you can't do all of it, knowing that you're going to make mistakes and knowing that it's really okay to ask for help. That was a really hard thing for me to do was ask for help because when you are the spouse, significant other or caregiver, you really don't have the luxury of believing anything, but everything's going to be a okay and go back to normal. You're the cheerleader, you're the team captain, you're the manager, you're all these things. So you're just balancing all these things and you don't really realize I should be asking for help. And there's, you already highlighted earlier that though you wrote the book for how to deal with cancer, it could be applied to any form of illness. And as you were talking about this one, it really hit me how important self-care is for the listeners, depending on what city you're in, what state you're in. As we go through COVID, we're on here in Vancouver, we're on, we're going a little over a year with rolling lockdowns. And we've been in the most recent one for two to three months. So you're, you mentioned get up, do X, do Y, rinse, repeat over and over and over. And, and for a lot of people, that's what's happening right now. What and, is a rolling lockdown? Well, what it is, is what I mean by that is we had lockdowns, things got better. The lockdowns shut off. We had a third wave the lockdowns came back. And so as case counts come down, they ease the restrictions. Okay, now you're allowed back on a restaurant patio. Now Got you're allowed it. back inside a restaurant. Oh, fitness classes can be open. And then it it almost, as it gets worse, fitness classes shut down, gyms shut down, gotcha. restaurants inside shut down. And so that's where we're at right now is you can go to a restaurant and sit on a patio. No group fitness classes are all shut down. If you can work from home, they're encouraging it. So most people are at home from the time they get up till they go to bed. And what are they doing to care for themselves while they're in that 18 hour time at their house? It's so easy to just eat junk and sit inside and watch TV and get sucked in by social media and not so I know you'll you'll get into my social media stuff, but it's amazing to me that in the 10 years since he was diagnosed, how much there is out there social media wise and all these different platforms. I feel like I'm glad all of this wasn't around back then because I probably, I mean, it sounds awful, but I don't know that when I was in the hospital room, if I'd had paid as much of attention to him or if my face would be in my phone or, you know, all those things. It's, it's just interesting. So... One of the things that brings up is we're still right when he was diagnosed, right when he was starting this. Sure. And you mentioned that when someone's diagnosed, they're likely to receive overwhelming offers of family support. How do you how do you handle that when you're on the receiving end? Yeah. So, so many people want to help. So many people want to know how you're doing. What can I do? All these types of things. There's also the flip side where people are, it's just crickets. Because people, you know, people are like, eh, let me know. But in genuine, a little bit, there's this thing here called Minnesota Nice. I don't know if you're aware of it. It's where people are like, 
hey, we should hang out, but they don't really mean it. (laughs) Sounds very Canadian. Yeah, really? That's funny. So it's one of those things. So I discovered, I forget who told me, but I discovered Caring Bridge. It's a website where you can instead of being inundated with text and emails and phone calls, you, when someone's going through a medical journey, whether you're the patient yourself or family member, spouse or whoever, you can do an update of how they're doing medically. You can put the address of the medical facility where they are. People can send cards there. But the main thing is you can do a blog post as often as you want and everybody that wants to read it signs up, it gets sent to their email. So I found that really helpful because then I didn't feel like, oh my gosh, I have to get back to so-and-so and and I need to update people and I need to do all of these things. And I did some stuff on Facebook and later, I mean, I did much, much more once we had team Grayson going and all these different things. But um, it was tough because people wanted to help. I didn't know what to tell them. Now there are websites like Meal Train and, you know, different things like that for people to bring you meals. That would have been wonderful back then. But it was just coming up with ways of tangible things. So we had neighbors across the street that... He had spent his whole life um, working inside. So now that he's been retired, he likes mowing lawns. He likes plowing snow, stuff like that. So we let them know when we had appointments and different things like that. And he's like, I'll take care of your yard. I'll take care of your, you know, uh, driveway. And one day we had to leave for a clinic appointment. We'd had this huge snowstorm, like eight or 10 inches. And they came and they dug us out with their shovels. And, you know, just letting people know what you actually need big part that you don't you're not aware of is which I'm sure we'll get to but finances and stuff like people mm-hmm. giving gas cards because you you don't anticipate you're going to have to pay for parking passes and all these types of things so the book came out in October but I've learned just in the last month or so it's something like $16,047 a year is what the average cancer patient pays out of pocket not covered by insurance yeah and and we'll we'll fast forward a little and I'll come back to some other questions but it's painful to think about finances when you're dealing with cancer. Yeah. And you have to do it it's a big issue. Can you share with the listeners when you went back and looked at all the bills, everything in the fullness of time, how big an, of a number was spent? And fortunately you had the right or solid insurance coverage in place to yeah. help you. But but there's still a massive amount, as you just said, that you have to be covering yourself, not to mention, as you said earlier, you can't work on that second job on the weekend that you were. Yeah. Your partner can't work at all. So what does that all look like? And, and how did you plan through that? And how do you recommend, what are some resources that the listeners can use to plan through their financial situation? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is you have to, so when you find out with the diagnosis and the treatment and the treatment protocols and all these things, I discuss all these questions and what to ask and all these things, I have all these checklists. So it's like a navigational toolbox with my story, everything in chronological order. You need to find out, you know, can they go back to work if they go back to work? So not only finances, but I go over like social security, disability, employment, you know, if you do go to back to work, you might need a stool if you had a job where you stood, things like that. But the big thing about finances is most likely you're not going to be able to afford all of your bills. Grayson had his dream car was a Subaru WRX and 
he had had really bad credit and, you know, not as good of cars in the past, like when I met him. And then all these years later, he had worked really, really hard and got this car that he wanted. And then he was just pissed. There's no other way to put it. When he was sick and we had to sell his car, he wasn't going to be driving it, but we couldn't afford the car payment either. So what I have in the book is I have a spreadsheet of breaking down all your finances. When it really comes down to it, none of that stuff really matters. The extras, it's just stuff. You know, you want to make sure your person's okay. Doesn't make it any easier, but um, you really do need to probably cut back on stuff. I mean, some people I think still have cable. I have like, you know, Hulu, Netflix, stuff like that. Luckily, things are less expensive and more bundleable these days in those ways. But you're going to have things you didn't expect. You know, the meals, the coffees, the parking passes, the gasoline to get back and forth. We were, like I said, very blessed to be close to medical treatment. There are a lot of people who live in rural areas who drive, you know, hours to appointments and things like that several days a week. Um, so all those different things add up. So within my book, I have, I spent dozens of hours online. I have websites and different things for funding for different kinds of cancer or illnesses or things to be able to help you. Because when I added everything up, I think what you were getting to, it was when I added it up later on, it was $4 million, like $4.4 million was the cost of his treatment for two years and three months. And I think we probably paid, we were very fortunate to have his mom being able to help us with money his dad had left to him, his late dad had left to him in a trust fund. But even still, you know, we were still short on things sometimes or things were really tight. So I found local organizations, the Angel Foundation, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society that can, you know, give you $100 here and there, you know, different things like that. It's important to look for those resources because there are there because you're going to have a lot of those uninsured expenses that you're going to pay out of pocket. And for the listener, one of the things I really appreciated about Rachel's books that or book that she was just highlighting right there is that it is taking you through the story that her and Grayson went through. And then when we talk about the emotional support, or we talk about the self care or the finances, there's effectively a section that guides you through with a number of resources. If you're in that situation, websites, et cetera, et cetera. So a person can not only learn your story, but they can, at the various points in time, understand ways to help themselves through it if they're going through it. So I, I very much appreciated that part of the book. With Grayson going through chemotherapy, he started to lose his hair. He handled it quite humorously. And at the same time, you highlight that for a lot of people, especially women that are going through this, it can be a very hard time for them. Can you take us through what that was like for you and Grayson when he was doing it, how he handled it with humor? Yeah. So, and some resources for people. Yeah. So he actually reminded me of a friend, Matt. I had Matt Stoles that in high school, he was on the swim team. And I remember, you know, cause you have to share, shave all your body hair. I remember he would come to school when it was that season and he'd have, you know, just on the sides and, you know, you look like those look characters from the game. Guess who? So Grayson shaved his hair in different stages. I mean, this is all within like a half an hour, but I took pictures and he was dancing around. And then he said, 
you know, when he got to the last part, he said, you know, this is it. And then he shaved it. And I remember thinking, holy crap, he just looks, he's skinny and has no hair. And oh my gosh, my husband has cancer. But for him, you know, what was funny is I always thought his head was gigantic, but not so much (laughs) until the hair was gone. (laughs) But for women, it's really hard. It's really hard, especially if you're someone who spent you know, years growing your hair out, things like that. But it's a lot of our identity. And it's one of those things where men by choice shave their head. Women do not often by choice shave their heads. And it's a giveaway. It's a dead giveaway. I have a friend who went through leukemia in the early 90s. And he also wrote a book and he has a story where he's living in Seattle. And it's during the time of, unfortunately, they had a really big population of skinheads like skinhead Nazi punk kids and he goes to the mall and he's skinny and he's wearing a white shirt and jeans and these girls are like he's like hey because he's thinking hey they're cute girls and he's 19 and they're like you're disgusting because they think he's a skinhead you know it's it's interesting because by not having hair it's a dead giveaway You know, and if you're someone who is a woman who has a wig that's a bright pink wig you know someone might might think, oh, well, they have cancer or they might not. You never know. But luckily, there are amazing um, organizations, foundations, different resources, things like that for people that do have cancer, um, where they can even help you get wigs at discount rates. There are um, wraps, hats, scarves, things like that, because people are very, very aware of women are very aware of the need to feel comfortable and feel at peace because when you're going through something this catastrophic, you really shouldn't have to worry about what people are thinking you look like. You need to be able to focus on your everyday needs and just getting through every day. And you guys, from a great news perspective, you talked about Caring Bridge earlier. You posted phenomenal news on February 2011. Can you tell us what the good news was that you shared? Yeah, so he was actually in remission after five weeks. They hit him really, really hard with chemo and steroids. And he was in remission and then able to go home. And I had gotten, I knew he was going to be able to be too weak to do the stairs in our basement where down there we had, that's where we had our TV and couches and things like that. And we just kind of had our mismatched couches upstairs with matching sofa covers and things like that. But we didn't have a TV or anything. And I remember going out, you know, sweaty in my winter coat, going out looking for couches and different things and a TV because I knew, you know, he wouldn't be able to physically go down the stairs. So I'm trying to prepare the house, get all these things. My sister's paying for a cleaning crew to come out, clean it because we have two cats and a dog and you need it very sterile. And then I learn he's going to come home and I'm like, I'm not ready (laughs) because I had so much to do. But it was pretty crazy. It was really crazy because it was very much like bringing home a newborn baby. You know, he was really sick. He had, even though he's better, I know he's going to go into treatment where he has to go five times a week for, you know, three months, then three times a week for several months and all these different things. So as far as, you know, getting on board with all these things, making sure he has all the meds he thinks, it was just an overwhelming amount of stuff to try to prepare for. And you were 28 at this point in time, if I recall correctly, and something that happened that you never imagined would, your parents moved in with the two of you to help out. 
Can you tell yeah, us they, about how that came up and, and what it was like? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you never really think you're going to be in your 20s and your parents are going to live with you. And the first thing I thought was like, oh, my gosh, my dad's going to fold my underwear. My mom's going to be up in my business. Like, but they had decided it was really hard for them to for me not to have them near. They were in Michigan in the summer where I'm from and then Georgia in the winter and they said, you know, we've talked about it. They'd been married 45 years at the time, still to the state married 55 years. My dad was 72 and my mom was 64. There you go. You know, they'd been together forever since they were 19, 18 and 25. And they were just like, you know what? We're going to take shifts. We're going to move in. We're going to do this. And I was just like, okay. And it ended up being the most amazing thing. But it was very overwhelming at first just to try to figure it out, all of it, and to know that I was going to have support. It was great to know that my mom and dad were going to be there. I didn't know what it was going to look like or how it was going to be or what was going to happen. But I knew it was just like a big, because I knew that I would be able to go to work and not have to worry that he would be in good hands because he was 6'2", naturally thin, would weigh weighed about 175, 180, and he got down to 145 pounds. So I just was so scared of, you know, I just wanted to bubble wrap him, bubble wrap the house and all these things. And if he got a fever, someone would have to drive him to the hospital. So really, he was really weak and vulnerable. So to know that I didn't have to worry about that and someone could be his babysitter, for better lack of word, was just so refreshing and relieving. And something you mentioned there was that strength and how that changed him. And that made it really hard for him to adjust to effectively a new life. And when he was coming home, you talked about the fact that it wasn't the new normal and he had to adjust to the new realities. And something you mentioned that may benefit the readers was you talked about ADLs and IDLs and how that applied to him relearning how to do certain things. Can you take us through what that was like for the two of you? Yeah, so like the activities of daily living, bathing, toileting, all those types of things. IDLs are whether it's paying bills or going to the store, doing different things like that. You know, it's crazy because in these times of COVID, we're getting a taste of what it's like to be a cancer patient all the time. We didn't ask for COVID, but they certainly don't ask for it. He was like, like I said, this newborn baby. So he could not go to the store. He couldn't go out. I mean, it was home the clinic, home the clinic, or the hospital if he had to be hospitalized again, things like that. He was so weak that I got shower chair for him to be able to sit on when he was in the shower, grab bars for the wall so he wouldn't fall. If he wanted to work on doing the dishes or something like that later on, not right away when he got home, but we had, you know, a chair at the sink that he could kneel on, all those different things because you really don't think about them, but just in the matter of five weeks, when you have all of these deadly chemicals go into your body and all these steroids, and you're most of the time in a hospital bed, except, you know, the 10 minutes a couple times a day, they have you get up and walk around in the hallways, your body really does decompensate. So you have to physically relearn these things. You have to learn how to, you know, stand, stoop, sit, all these different things with all with like a new body. In a way, it's it's a on a like a pregnant woman that's a very small scale of 
I mean, you know, spatial wise where you are. And of course you have the discomfort and things like that, but this is really your body completely betraying you. And you have to learn how to redo all the, you know, things that should have been just normal, normal things that your body, you know, voluntarily does. So it was really interesting. And you mentioned in there, you were talking about the fact that he was taking steroids to regain some of that strength that he had formerly had. Unfortunately, the steroids had a very negative impact on his body. Can you tell the readers what ended up happening and ultimately what that resulted in for Grayson? Yeah, so what's really interesting is they give you these steroids. Um, they pump you. It's really tricky. So they pump you full of... Let me back up and say, so one of the things I'm currently doing right now in Minnesota is I'm running for Woman of the Year, which is just this fundraising 10-week race, not physical race, but race trying to raise as much money as possible for research development, all these different things. So basically, and I'm assuming it's similar with organ cancers, but specifically for this acute lymphoblastic leukemia, what happens to a lot of people, what happened to Grace and what happens to children is they're most people... God willing, they're able to get you into remission, but the medications, meaning the chemo and all these things that get you to that point are so damaging to your organs and different things that you have. It does its job for the cancer itself. But what happens is these treatments, especially for children like ALL, these are treatments that are targeted towards tougher bodies of adults. And what happened with him is, so he was in remission, he was doing better, but he had neuropathy, which is where you feel like you have pinpoint, sometimes sharp, but pinpoint prickles in your, your fingers, your hands, your feet, things like that. So his feet, by the end of the day, a couple months after he came home, would be like Frankenstein, like boom, 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 boom. And they actually, it's almost like he would walk and his feet would come after him. So there was that. But then the steroids would make him, he ballooned up in weight like six, eight months later to the fact where his skin was stretched so tight, he wasn't fitting in his clothes. He had to wear like compression stockings, things like that. But a year after he was diagnosed, he started having these sharp pains in his leg and his ankle. And then it started moving up to his hip. And he went to see a osteo doctor and... This person, of course, had all the empathy of a carrot stick and said to the research nurse, you know, what is his expected, I forget the exact word, but what's his expected longevity or whatever that was. And it turned out what happened is the socket in his hip had cracked and has started to fall out. So in essence, it was slowly falling out of it. It was going to collapse. And they were telling him well, you're young, you're only 36. This isn't something that we repair for people your age because you'll have to get it every 10 years. So, you know, this is what it is, but sorry, you know, just take pain meds. You're going to deal with it. So that was just baffling to us both. And I can only imagine that at this stage, from what you've been guiding us through, the type of toll that it would have been taking on you and Grayson, Focusing on you as the caregiver, one of the things you we talked about earlier, self-care, we talked about emotional support. You also write about the importance of caregiver therapy. 
Can you describe the background for that and any recommendations you might have for the listener other than what you, you know, including what you catalog in the book? Yeah. So actually what I do for a living now is I work at a behavioral health insurance company, getting people connected to therapy. And it is definitely something I think everybody should have. You know, I have people come in, the, the so I have a headset and calls automatically beep into me. I have people sometimes that are like, I'm not crazy. I don't need therapy. And I, I always, I think therapy should be subsidized. Everybody needs it. We all need somebody to talk to. But I just remember thinking like, I have to have someone that's my own person that's familiar with the dynamics of cancer or a serious illness and just being able to get it out, get some coping skills. Cause you have your parents, you have your siblings, you have, you know, friends, but someone that gets it and that can give me tangible things I can do. So I started seeing someone and she was near like a restaurant. I would get my burrito. I would go there. I would talk to her. And by the time I left, I would almost be like, just kind of dance jogging to my car because it just felt like, oh, you know, you, you get it out. You just feel validated when you're going through something that feels this isolating. It's really important to have someone authentically get it. So I think it's really important to seek someone that is a third party that is not in your circle, knows nothing about you, that's your specific person. And she actually had Grayson come in once with me just so she could meet him kind of see our dynamic of talking together. But yeah, I think that it's it's really necessary. There are a lot of online platforms now. What I specifically do for a living is I get people connected. I don't know what you have in Canada, but we have here for a lot of, I know there are Canadian ones through the company I work with, but there's an employee assistance program where your employer pays for a set of prepaid sessions outside of your insurance where you can go see someone at no cost. You know, there are different things. There's, I believe it's called Seven Cups of Tea, different interfaces, websites, all different kinds of stuff. I have all of it in the book. Just different ways to look for that. Even if you talk to someone at your place of faith worship or, you know, somebody you don't know or whether it's a support group or whatever that is, say you go to a support group and there's Gladys or whoever, or John, or whoever, you know, say, can you go for a cup of coffee? Can you go for whatever? Because even if it's not a formal professional, if it's someone that's not in your circle that has been there, that has gone through it, that gets it, that's, that will completely just change your world. And, and we do have up here, Rachel, we do have EAP as well. And awesome. for the listeners, I highly recommend if you know someone close to you or a colleague who you think may be having challenges in the mental health arena, the EAP resource is a great way to reach out and, and get help in a cost-effective way. So highly, highly recommend that. Rachel, it always seems that when you go out shopping – something goes wrong. We fast forward <laughs> and you're out shopping and you miss three calls again from Grayson. And when you did reach him, you received horrible news. The leukemia was back. And, and I'm at Target again. You're at Target. <laughs> and Target for some of us Canadians. Uh, Target Boutique. Yes. Yeah. My wife's favorite store in the world. And he needs a bone marrow transplant. Can you take us through what that meant for the two of you and what the next steps were? Yeah. So what that means is basically a bone marrow transplant is, so I'm in the Target parking lot. I call him back. He's crying, telling me his cancer came back. 
he has to have a bone marrow transplant. What that means is you have to either use your own stem cells that they filter out, clean, put back in, which is autologenous, and I forget what the other one is, but it's where you have a donor match. So his sister was not a match, turned out, but what has to happen is they wipe out your entire immune system with chemo and radiation, literally this time, making you like a newborn baby. You are so vulnerable. And it's basically, we're at the point where if this bone marrow transplant does not take, he's going to die. There's no other, all these things that are going to happen. He needs chemotherapy to prepare his body for the transplant, but just chemo itself is not going to do it. Um, so we're at the point of learning this. And he's just bawling his eyes out when I get home because he doesn't want me to have to go through it again. He's not wanting to go through it again because he's tired, physically tired, mentally tired. He does not think he's going to do it again, but he does not want me to have to go through it again because he knows how hard it was for me. And on top of that, something that the doctor told you that at the time you didn't share with anyone was that he only had a 19% yeah. percent chance of being successful with the treatment. How did that feel at the time for you? How did you take that? It was horrific. So we found out, so he relapsed in August, and then we hospitalized him to start chemo to prepare his body on Monday, August 20th, our eighth wedding anniversary. And everyone is just crestfallen. All the medical staff, because he was one of their favorites. He was just gosh golly nice. Everybody loved him. And he was one of those people like, how could you not? Not that I thought he was the most amazing thing, but he, he was just the nicest person ever. So people, they just, you know, were just so disappointed that this happened. And he's trying to crack jokes that, you know, this is what we get for our eighth wedding anniversary. And we bring him back in to do this in August, September, October, November, December, his, his leukemia came back. So like I had said, it was 97% when he was first diagnosed. When it comes back, it's like 6% or something like that. But that's enough to know that it's going to mutate and grow and you can get sicker and sicker and sicker. So it's like nip it in the bud while it's there. They just could not get it below 1%. So he was just dealing with it again and again and again and more hospitalizations and more fevers and more chemo. And it's just, it's kind of like every month when someone's trying to have a baby every month, you find out you're not pregnant, you're not pregnant, exact same thing. But you're finding out your body's not ready for something that you have to have or you're going to die. So when the doctor told us that in January, it was just very daunting, very sobering. But it was like, I heard it, let it fly. To, I think I wrote this, these exact words, but like I heard it, let it fly to the sky and it's gone. Because we didn't have the luxury of grieving it or thinking anything detrimental would happen. It was okay. This is our life. This is what we're going to do. It's like you said earlier, we're going to war. We're going to beat this. We're going to fight yeah. it. Yeah, we have to fight that. Mm -hmm. For Grayson, this time, it was a lot of complications for him, including a need to be incubated in the ICU for a week. Can you take us through some of the challenges that he was dealing with in this round? What was that like for for you? And your mother and father were also at the hospital quite regularly this through this round of treatment. Yeah. So, How was so, everyone dealing with this? So someone was with him every single day, morning shift, night shift. His mom was there more. I had had so many adhesions on my reproductive organs that four days, four or five days before his bone marrow transplant, I actually had 
surgery. So we're both sitting there on the day of his transplant, like on our own painkillers. Just, you know, this is just terrible. This is laughing at our misfortune. (laughs) Trying to have his best sense of humor as possible. And two months in, he gets a blood clot in his lungs. And luckily, you know, miraculously, he gets past that. And I learned it's like one in a million people get past that. But he had to be intubated, which is the vent down his throat. He's on artificial life support. And I'm told, you know, we have to do this. He calls me. He says, I can't breathe. Um, Then they put him on the vent right away. And then I get there and I'm just completely freaked out. This is, you know, I'm, I'm thinking he might die, but not really believing it. And just really aware of, it's like, like getting in a rocket and blasting off to space. It's just so weird, so surreal, so odd. You know, this can't be my life. This can't be happening. And I remember asking his physician's assistant, could he die? And she said yes. And I just hated her more than anything in the world at that moment because she told me what I didn't want to hear. And then my parents were just, oh, you know what? He's going to be fine. We're going to pray. So it's like, I was Grayson's positivity cheerleaders. They were my positivity cheerleaders. And we were all just praying and going with it. He was going to be fine. And he he did get through it. He did. And then there were more complications with his bladder. There were some issues he was dealing with with that, if I recall correctly. Yep. Bladder, kidneys, different things. So he did actually miraculously go from the ICU to a rehab facility, learning to walk and doing all these things within a two-week turnaround. But then he went for one of his bone marrow transplant, BMT, checkups, and they just couldn't adequately staff his needs with a bladder disease that he had from all the meds and whatnot. So he was back in the bone marrow transplant wing. And then ultimately on April 17th, I got a call. So this whole time he's on oxygen, different kinds of flow levels of oxygen. And I get a call. He called me and instead of the nurse at first this time, he called me and said, I can't breathe. You know, I didn't sleep well. And he just sounds, he's telling me it's like one of those World War II type masks. And it just, I hear this weird noise and, you know, we say I love you back and forth three times. And then my dad and I hop in the car and go to the hospital to try to find him. And we get there and they've innovated him and they, he's kind of freaking out. So I said, you know, please just, just medicate him, knock him out. So they did. And then my dad went to go get coffee or something. And I sat down and I had two or three doctors come in and tell me, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but we've done as much as we can. We're going to see what we can do. You know, we're going to wait two days. And I'm thinking, well, hell, in two days, it's my 31st birthday. This is wonderful. And I just knew in that moment, that was it. He was going to die. There was nothing else. I mean, they basically told me that. And then what was odd is this whole time I'm like floating above myself, seeing it all. And I'm so I'll fast forward. So then I learn on my birthday, we'll wait two more days. So then ultimately on the 21st, which was eight years last week, I had made a heaven playlist the night before my best friend, my husband, my everything. I took him off life support and held him and waited an hour for his heart to stop. And he died. So What's amazing is I'm so calm and so serene over these five days because it's like this, it's this odd limbo. It's this sense of peace and relief at knowing that he's not, I mean, he was in so much pain. He had this, you know, button he could press when he was alert and with it. 
this button he could press for pain, the bladder stuff. He was just in so much pain all the time. When you get radiation and things like that, you feel like your skin is burning. He was just not in a good place and his body had just been ripped to shreds. So I'm, I'm feeling peace at knowing that he's not going to be going through this. And what's tricky is because I'm the wife, I just want to scream like, you know, either get up and walk out, get up out of bed, walk out of the room or pull the plug right now. So it's, it's like a ticking time bomb of these days because you know he's going to die. You know there's not, miraculously, they can't do anything else. I mean, I believe it was my faith, it was God, why I was so calm, but it's just a very weird thing. But I think that was the grace of the situation, the grace of Grayson, is that I had watched his body fall apart this whole time. He didn't, you know, go to Afghanistan and get blown up or whatever. I was there, I saw it. So I think that brought me a lot of peace as well through this whole time. And it's also through this time, Rachel, that you highlight the importance of pre-planning yeah. things like living, living wills, documenting the conversations of what you want, because in that, in those final days, there can often be different family members who are arguing for a different route mm -hmm. and ensuring that you're able to say, no, this is, this is what my partner wanted. Here's, here it is documented. We're not, we're not doing X or Y. This is, this is what the person who's in that bed said they wanted in this situation. And this is what we're, what we're going to be doing. Yeah. And you know, I had a tumultuous relationship, which I talk about in the book, which is why everyone's names are changed with his mother. And she came the morning that he died and she's like, Oh no, I'm not ready. And the physician's assistant was like, well, we can wait till Monday. And I'm like, no, no, this is my call. And what's funny is it's been eight years now. And last week when it was the anniversary, I learned from my dad. I never knew this whole time that so he had had all these conversations with Grayson when he was spending time with him in the hospital. Grayson was telling him how he wanted to be buried with his dad. You know, his dad, half the ashes by his dad. I get half the ashes to do what I want with. He wants to donate his body to the University of Minnesota. And I had no idea that like, my dad had had these conversations with Grayson's mom and stepdad and as they both freaked out and not wanted it. And my dad's like, well, this is what he wants. So there are all these other dynamics of things that all these years later I'm learning. So yeah, it is very tricky because people feel, I think with something this big, you want to you wanna control, you want to have ownership of certain parts of things when there's so much you can't control, but ultimately you can't. It's up to them. So you know, within a few months after he died, I have all my paperwork, my healthcare directive, you know, you can just go to the bank, get it notarized, my siblings, my parents, they have a copy of it because it's really important to have. I mean, we never, my dad, he's about to turn 82, but he's been saying since I can remember, you know, I could just go outside and get hit by a truck someday. But it's true. You want what you need. And especially, you know, if you're in capacitated like COVID, different things. If you can't talk, you you really need what you would like written down for people to be able to adequately reflect and respect your wishes. And Rachel, shortly after that, you wrote about after Grayson's passing is widow logistics, you yes. called it. <laughs> Can you take us through some of the key things a widow or a widower should be considering on the passing of their partner. So the first thing that you have to address is, 
is there like an afterlife memorial service, funeral, whatever that is? It's really bizarre that your person is gone. Now you have to plan a service for other people. This pom and circumstance graduation of sorts. So I actually have resources within there of I list what I did, but then also resources on how to plan this, how to do it on the cheap. It's very expensive for a funeral. Very, very expensive. It's like minimum like $1,500, $2,000 for cremation. I'm sure even since I got those numbers a year ago, it might be more. But all those types of logistical things, when you need to do that, you know, ways you can use other people's gifts towards your advantage for the service. You know, I let a friend do all the flowers, you know, whether you want people to make some sort of treat for the reception, all those types of things I go over. A huge thing I go over that's really difficult is one thing people really don't talk about with grief and loss is the financial aspect. So when someone dies, more than likely, you probably won't be able to afford, if you're one of us that, you know, most people that live paycheck to paycheck and things like that, you probably are not going to be able to afford living where you are if you had two incomes. So he died, poof, goes the social security check. I later ended up working, you know, three part-time jobs, hustling, doing garage sales, all kinds of stuff that I was running to make ends meet. And still, it was really tough. But, you know, getting rid of that other car, selling the other car, if there's two, then you, you know, the car insurance payment, all those types of things. Unfortunately, along with this catastrophic life shift you did not ask for, you may need to downsize where you're living. You may need to cut costs on other things. You may need, I had someone, a young girl that was like 19 that moved into my house that rented from me in the basement and my sister called her the lady in the basement. They thought it was just bizarre, but they were in a different state and didn't understand I needed help paying for my mortgage in ways that I did. So it's just, you're gonna, you're gonna have to reformat. And what you learn in widow, widower logistics is you can't really pre-plan a lot. You have to learn it as you go. You know, I give you a guide um, of how I did it, but you're gonna have to work on those financials, reformat how all of that works, reformat, you know, if you do have availability. I was blessed in that when he was in remission and I got a new job, one of the things they offered was life insurance. So I was able to take eight months off of work. Within that, I ended up getting a hysterectomy which was another huge loss. And so it's not like everything was sunny and shiny during that. But, you know, taking time, making sure there's counseling, things like that, the time frame for lots of things, I don't really think people understand. One of them being, or at least in my, my perspective, you know, for work, when I have people call in for counseling now, their spouse or their parent or whoever might have died like the week before. And with something that big, it's usually six months or something after, then you might start counseling because you need time to wallow. You need time to do these things. It's it's very difficult to try to process it, let alone verbalize it and verbalize it with a professional. Um, all of these types of things you learn and you learn within the process. So I, I try to sprinkle little nuggets of what I learned along the way within those logistics. And as part of uh, part of that logistics, you often have people around you who are giving you the advice to uh, <laughs> effectively shrug it off and yes. get back out there and tackle life. And 
So one of the decisions you had to make and reinforce for the listener, make this decision if you have to, is some of those people you have to cut off. Rachel, can you share how uh, some of that happened to you? Yeah. So actually, I had friends do a fundraiser for me, and I ended up going to Alaska two months after he died, doing the inside passage actually from Anchorage to Vancouver, and then back up and didn't know Clint was there. And (laughs) I remember it was actually my brother who he knows because he read the book that I throw him under the bus by saying this, but he and his wife were just shocked. I learned from my parents that I was utilizing the money that I'd gotten from the fundraiser to go on a trip. And they were like, you have no idea. She's got to get away. She's got to do this. So people are going to have different perspectives. They're not going to understand And as frustrating as that is, it's okay because you don't want them to know what it's like to be you. You want that validation, but you don't want them to have to know. And I had one of my best friends of 12 years. I was going to be in her wedding. I had an engagement party for her. I'd helped her pick out a dress. And all of a sudden it's, you know, so he died in April of 2013. So she gets engaged that fall and the wedding shows in January. And then it's, April, May, and around then of 2014, and she's telling me, you know, I don't really think that you're happy for me. You don't really seem happy, and her wedding is in August or July or something like that. And I had been filling her in on, you know, my life and different things, and she made some sort of blanket statement one day about how, you know, you just need to get a job, because I was working part-time nanny jobs and things like that. And What I could not do is I could not go back into social services at that time because that was too much for me to give. I couldn't take on other people's vulnerabilities. I had my own, Um, but I could take care of children. I could play my little ponies. You know, I could change diapers. I could do those simple autopilot type things. But this friend of mine, I had made a concrete decision about something and we were texting about it. And she said, I don't think you should do that. We'll talk about this later. I have to go back to work. And I thought, well, you're not my mom. Like, what are you doing? And this person, I know she had been well-intended, but I I was continuing to be hurt and frustrated. And I just pulled the ripcord after 12 years of friendship and didn't even do it by phone, just texted her and said, I'm out. Pulled out of the, pulled out of the wedding, pulled out of everything, never talked to her again. She left me voicemails. I know I really hurt her. I actually had a dream about her last night, all these years later. And it's, it's one of those things where, you know, sometimes I'm tempted to reconnect, but that was a toxic, at the time, that was a toxic relationship. And what's really tricky is when the funeral is over, when the catastrophic illness, when they're in remission or they've died or whatever, people go back to their normal lives. People go back to their children's, their, their children, their significant others, and you're left just feeling like a sad bucket of soup that's been left on the sidewalk in the rain. You really are... It was devastating to me to lose friends at 31, not because they didn't care, but because people didn't know what to say. They didn't know what to do. And within that, I just had to let it go. It was painful, but I just had to let it go. If they were a toxic person, you know, I cut them out, but I just had to pray about it and believe that I was doing what was right for me. And there was this lady from my church that had helped do a fundraiser that would stop by my house and check on me and I was smart to never let her in because I knew she would probably never leave 
She would stand on the porch and she kept telling me, oh, I know, I know, I'm a widow. I know, I know, I know. And one day she's like, I asked her about it. She's like, oh, I'm not really widowed. I, you know, my husband volunteers all the time at church and he golfs so much. I feel like a widow. And like people just, you just want to smack them. (laughs) And it's, you know, one of the worst things you can say to a widow or widower or someone who's lost their child is I know how you feel because you really don't. For me, I still had, even a year later, I would like look up at times and look at the front door and visualize him walking through the door, just thinking he might be walking through the door. And they're not. This is the person you've planned your life with, you think you're going to have kids with, you think you're going to do all these things. And as horrible as it is to lose a parent, lose a sibling, lose whoever, grandma, grandpa, it's not the same as the person that you thought you were going to spend your life with. So it's, it's tricky. And I had someone close to me tell me, you should just pick a date and decide to be happy and move on. And it doesn't work that way. It really doesn't work that way. You have to, again, you're strapped in the roller coaster and you really do have to adhere to what's going on, whether you like it or not. It's like getting gum stuck in your hair, I suppose. I've never thought of that one before, but it really is. It's like, you can't try to brush it out. It's it's in there. You can you can cut it out, I suppose, but you're going to have a chunk of your hair missing. But it's, it's one of those things where I hated, I really hated the cliche, you know, time heals all wounds and different things like that. But it really does. And ultimately just takes time. And yeah. The grief in general is something that seems to be handled very poorly in North America from an outsider's perspective. Other mm-hmm. cultures or countries have much longer grieving processes that allow a person to grieve and the people on the outside are supportive of it and are aware right. of it and recognize that it's not something that you someone passes on a on a Monday in January and on a Tuesday in February, you should be back at it. But in, in North America, we seem to think it's something that you should just be able to sweep under the bed and start living your life the next day almost normally. Yeah, it's tricky. I think that or it's one of those things where you'll just deal with it at home when it's just you. Like when you're out in public, you know, (laughs) when you're out in public, wear wear your mask. But when you're at home, you can take your mask off. So the and so fast forward another year and a bit, September 21, 2015, 14 years to the day that you met Grayson. Things started to shift for you at work and in life. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So I had really been struggling trying to find jobs. The job market was just really bad. I want to say I applied for like 200 and something. I would get these jobs, nanny jobs, different things, and they would just be fall through, you know, different things. They weren't working out. I'm working three part-time jobs, one with an autistic child with many different issues at her school, another with an autistic child picking him up from his school, driving 80 miles every day, and then helping a woman with multiple sclerosis at night, sometimes working 16-hour days, just barely keeping it together, believing that things are going to be better, but barely keeping it together. And in the meantime, I'm trying to date 
you know, I'm coming across people that are real humans in this world that say things to me like, did you catch your husband's cancer? <laughs> you know, all these things. And I had a friend tell me, Grayson really didn't help you out a lot because he always treated you really nicely. So now you're not used to like as bad as <laughs> it is to date. So it's like I'm on this like just adventure of failing of trying to find someone and within that, I just keep dating and dating and dating. And I mean, I'm just saying going out on dates, meeting someone face to face, and I just keep doing it. And you'd think like one of my sisters was like, Rachel, you should just stop and spend some time by yourself. And it's like, that's all that I'm doing is spending time by myself. You know, I'm so sad. One day I asked one of my employers to give me a hug and they thought that it was just bizarre. It's like, I'm just so I had been someone's other half. I'm really wanting someone to give a crap about me, to ask me about my day that's not, you know, a parent or I'd miss the inside jokes, all those little things. So I start a job at this new place and sitting in the cubicle next to me is someone who is 11 years older that has also had a very difficult life and three weeks of starting this new job, new life, I end up dating this person and... In the epilogue, I talk about how, and I actually don't discuss this on any other podcast, so this is a special one just for you because I make people read the book to find out. But now, in October, I will have been married to this person for five years. So it's quite amazing that 14 years to the day that I met both of my husbands. It was you know, September 21st. So it's it's, it's pretty incredible. crazy. It, yeah. And now I'm an advocate for cancer and trying to help people know that you really are not alone. I literally licked the bottom of the barrel and it was ugly. It was really hard. It was really tough. But you know what? I did it. And I wrote this book, The Nitty Gritty. It is not a Nicholas Sparks novel. It is what I went through, how I went through it, tips to help you. Um, so you really don't feel alone because you're not. And I, my life literally blew up. Worst food fight, worst war, worst anything you can think about. And you know what? I'm okay. But it took a lot of work to get here. And Rachel, we will put a link to your book in the show notes. Yeah. And now I can share the title so I hadn't given it all away at yeah. the start of the conversation. Rachel's book is Wife, Widow, now what? How I navigated the cancer world and how you can too. Rachel, what's happening for you now? So you're an advocate. What else is happening I am. in your life? So I'm, I'm trying to raise $60,000 in Grayson's name. I'm partway there. I have three more weeks. I'm trying to raise as much money as possible. But you know what? Within going through what I've been going through, um, I've always been a very blunt person. I don't know if that's because I'm the youngest of four to my two older siblings are like, you know, you're just, you always ask the checker, like, how are they? Or, you know, you just, you go above and beyond. I'll give people compliments. Even it sounds awful, even if I don't really like it. Cause you know, if you see someone that's sad in an elevator and you're like, Oh, I like your sweater. And they're like, oh, thanks. You know, you're, you're making it, you know, I, I'm that girl. Right. So, you know, for the silent auction, for this event that's coming up, I contacted, I did not hear back from Aerosmith or ACDC, but Sarah McLaughlin, one of my favorites ever that you know I talk about in the book, yeah. she sent me a signed CD. I oh, have Carol beautiful. King sending me signed CDs. I have Rufus Wainwright sending me a signed record. I have 
all kinds of amazing things. You just ask. There's this singer, Matt Costa. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. I really like him. He's out of California. I've seen him several times, met him a couple times in my early 20s. He's doing a concert for me virtually in the next couple weeks. So it's just when you've been through something like this, you just don't care what anybody else thinks. You just think, I want to help people. How can I help people? So my thing now is like, I'm just getting it out there. I am on as many podcasts as possible. You know, I've contacted Oprah. I've contacted everybody to try to get my book out there. Not successful with those yet. But I just want to get the message that you can go through something. I feel like this is my tag word, but you can go through something catastrophic. You can go through something that's horrific and still be okay. When I was 22 standing in this cave that's been renovated where the gangsters hung out in the 1920s during Prohibition, when I'm standing in front of this cave as a 22-year-old baby getting married, I had no idea that 11 years later, my other half would be dead. I mean, that sounds really crass, but it's true. And, you know, I had something pop up on Facebook yesterday that was like, Rachel loves Grayson, and it was stamped to the time of 2010. And it made me a little teary because I'm trying to raise money now for cancer. Last week, when it was the eighth anniversary of his death, I had a really hard time. Year five, six, seven, all those... I've been fine on those days, I think because the scar tissue is being picked at by me discussing all this for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. When I'm discussing things on podcast, it's more of a, of a clinical level. I've, I've been through this and I'm spaced out and distanced and healed. But when I'm discussing, people really need your help. People really need, there are kids, babies, all these people that I know you know, all these people going through stuff. So, you know, because you read the book, Clint, I had a really kind widower that was a friend of a friend that I was in contact with that gave me $500 when Grayson was in the ICU. And with that, I was able to stay in the hotel across the street. They ended up getting married, the friend and him. And one of his twins from his late wife ended up getting lymphoma himself. He just finished three years of chemo. His mom died. Now he has it. He has a twin and it's just like this nine-year-old kid that's going through hell that has to wear braces because his legs are falling apart because the treatments are not great. I can advocate. I can ask for money. I can buy. I lost a friend on Facebook, a friend in my life last week because they were so tired of me posting, hey, we need your money. Hey, this, hey, that. And it's like, oh, but you know what? I can't care. I have to care about cancer doesn't stop. So neither can I. And I'm just putting myself out there trying to do as much as possible because I lost my person. And even though I'm married again now and I am healthy and I am happy and I am healed, a lot of people aren't and cancer isn't going to stop. And every three minutes, someone is diagnosed with blood cancer. Every nine minutes, someone dies from blood cancer. I actually threw what's amazing is I think you'll love the story, Clint, through my book, um, just trying to get it out there to, you know, propositioning people, creep in Instagram to try to find people that I think will help. Out of my book, I found Lindsay, who's in Winnipeg, who, as soon as the borders open, I'm going to visit her. I can't sh We connected in October, and her husband, she took care of him for two years. He had acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Then, after caring for him for two years, she herself got acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Then, four months later, he died. Now, she's her own caregiver, fighting for her life during covid 
And she's still fundraising thousands of dollars for me on behalf of the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. So it's just powerful, the connection of who we meet and what we do. And I think one of the biggest things I like to share is kind of like back in the Klondike days when people used to go to the Yukon area and pan for gold and they, you know, they put it all on the line, leave their families not adequately bundled for winter and go up those hills hoping for something for those nuggets of gold. More than likely what you're going through in life, it is not fair. It is not pretty. It is, I am so sorry. But what I can tell you is from the hell that I've been through, because I have walked fire hand in hand with my husband and a lot by myself, is that more than likely what you're going through, you're going to get nuggets of gold that you're going to realize later are going to help you for volunteering or a future career or if it's that coworker or that friend and you can say, I am so sorry I have been there. That means everything in the world. That means everything in the world. This person that I didn't know from Adam that's now cancer patient and widow in Canada, we're like sisters and we're going to hang on tight to each other for life. And it's just, it's almost, she said, it's almost creepy how alike our, our stories are and they didn't have children. I don't have children, but I mean, just the, the, the similarities and all the different things in this, you know, I called her on New Year's Eve when the ball dropped and I was just, after I talked to her, she was okay. But after I talked to her, I just hung up and bawled my eyes out and told my husband, I wish I would have had someone like me because I did not. You know, not that I'm the savior by any means, but I think you're getting what I'm saying, that when we go through an experience and we have something to authentically share with someone, that's the biggest thing that we can do. On my phone, I have alarm set a couple times a week for different friends that are going through tough stuff so I can check in with them. It's free. doesn't cost anything. If you know someone is going through a hard time, just shoot them a text. It means everything in the world. It means everything. And the biggest thing we can do is have that human connection to just tell people, I'm here. I'm listening. What can I do? And I think that, that that's just one of the most powerful things that we can do. And from that, you know, you're helping them, but they're helping you too. It's pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, that is such a great idea to set up the tech, set up the alarm to just fire a text yeah. to a friend to say, hey, thinking about you, here if you need me, hope you're all right, right? Just checking in and letting them know that there's someone who has their back is in, an incredible yeah. idea, Rachel. Now, is there anything we didn't cover that you want to get out to the listeners? I don't think so. So Wife Widow Nawa is on Amazon. You can find me on Facebook or Instagram. And please ask me questions, whatever, whatever you'd like. I literally, no pun intended, am an open book. You know, I'm not an expert by any means on grief or loss or all of these things. I'm an expert in the journey that I went on. But I can definitely say, you know, as bad as it was, I am such a healthy mentally, physically adjusted person because of the work that I did. And I didn't always want to do that. You know, I write in my book, you know, Clint, you know, when your spouse dies, you don't sit around eating salads, you eat cake, you get whatever, like I gained weight, didn't take care of myself, you know, all those types of things. But I reflect on them for you um, to be able to have more positive ways to take care of yourself. But it's it really is trial and error and just do the best that you can and no one expects anything of you. And it's just 
take it in your own time. And I authentically am so sorry if you're going through something very difficult. And I really hope that you can find a kindred in what I wrote because, you know, writing this was a lot of PTSD. It was a labor of love. It was very difficult to write. But within doing that, you know, I was thinking if even two people feel less alone, then it was all worth it. So. So what we'll do in the show notes is we'll put links to your Instagram, to your Facebook, to the book on Amazon. We'll also put a link to the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society so people can follow through to that to donate if they're able to. And I'm so sorry to read the story of what you both went through. And at the same time, so encouraged at the silver linings that came out of it that you're able to share with the world. Thank you, Rachel, for being on and sharing your message. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us on The Pursuit of Learning. Make sure to hit the subscribe button and head over to our website, thepursuitoflearning.com, where you will find our show notes, transcripts, and more. If you like what you see, sign up for our mailing list. Until next time, your host in learning, Clint Murphy.